when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Career Karma CEO Ruben Harris. It is a fascinating time to talk to someone in the business of helping people get new jobs. We're still fully in the middle of the pandemic-driven Great Resignation. A record 4.5 million people quit their jobs in November of 2021, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. In the middle of all that, Career Karma is booming. The company's platform helps job seekers identify potential new career paths, then it matches them with coding boot camps and other training programs to help them on their way. Ruben and his team just raised $40 million in Series B funding for a total of $52 million. And it's launching a live audio feature for job seekers to connect and talk about their career paths. So, of course, I wanted to talk to Ruben about what he plans to do with that infusion of cash and how he plans to grow Career Karma. I also want to talk about how Career Karma makes money, what Ruben's learned from his community of job seekers about the future of the job market, and honestly, if he thinks the traditional nine to five might be on the way out. Now, if you've been listening to Decoder, you know, I love a startup CEO with ambition, and Ruben is definitely an ambitious startup CEO. This is a good one. I think you're going to like it. Ruben Harris, CEO of Career Karma. Here we go. Ruben Harris, you're the co-founder and CEO of Career Karma. Welcome to Decoder. Yes, sir. Thank you, brother. So you got some news to talk about. You just raised $40 million in Series B funding. That's a total of $52 million. I want to talk about what you're going to do with the money. But let's start at the very start. What is Career Karma? What do you do for people? Yeah, so Career Karma is the easiest way to find a job training program online. We serve blue-collar workers, usually in the age of 25 to 35 years old, that want to get a job in tech. That could be younger, that could be older, but that tends to be the age range. And job training programs 
pay us to send them qualified applicants. A common misconception is that Career Karma only helps people get jobs as software engineers, but we actually offer seven different career paths in Career Karma that are technical and non-technical, like sales and marketing and design. Once we match someone to our best recommendations of a school and they enroll into a training program that gets them a job in about three to 12 months, we actually have live audio rooms uh, to give them support uh, from peers, coaches, and mentors during the program so that they could get any questions or overcome any insecurities. And then when they get to the job search, they can connect directly with companies to find a job. That live audio thing, that's very, it's like a pandemic hit, right? Is Clubhouse and Twitter spaces. Did you build that because the networking component was harder in the pandemic? Our, our roots are actually in audio. So before we started Career Karma, uh, we had a podcast like this one. It was called Breaking Into Startups, and we still have it. I used to work in radio. We've always been bullish on audio because most people that come from this demographic actually listen to the radio and television, and we've always known that at some point, you know, cars are going to be digitized and Bluetooth technology is going to be a big deal. Like, you know, it's not just Tesla that's out there, but everything's digital. And then you have these at-home devices like Amazon and Alexa and things like that. So our roots are in audio. But to your point, you know, as we started to see how audio starts taking off on the Internet, it wasn't just Clubhouse and Twitter spaces. You see, you know, LinkedIn has audio now. Um, Reddit has audio. Wait, oh, to be fair, LinkedIn has everything. Like LinkedIn, LinkedIn has, has never seen yeah, it. Yeah. Format it doesn't copy. LinkedIn has stories. Crazy. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so, to your point, rather than going like crazy with all the features, before we had audio rooms, we're actually pretty dependent on Zoom and Discord and Slack to run our community features um, and spreadsheets and like that's only gets you so far. If you want to help a billion people, you probably need proprietary technology. And so uh, we launched uh, on iOS, Android, and the web last year. And um, now our rooms are stable and there's thousands of people in it. That's cool. How many people is Career Karma? Uh, we have about 40 people that are US and 200 people total globally. Wow. And then how, how is that structured, right? You've got a community component. You're building some technology. You partner with all these boot camps and other job training programs, you must have a partnerships group. How, how is that structured and how is it sort of allocated? I'm the CEO, so I have the people team that reports to me. Uh, so our VP of people is Jessica Lamb. She covers not just the recruiting side of things, but also the employee experience side of things, the compliance side of things, the people development side of things. So once people are internally, how do we like lay out their competencies and create um, internal pathways so people can grow? So we have like our people team is is the strongest team in the organization. Um, I'm biased. That's my, my that's <laughs> the, but like everybody's going to say that about their team. But like, so I have the people team. I am also actively hiring for a head of business development and a head of finance. My co-founder is the chief technology officer. So he has the engineering team reporting to him, the data team reporting to him, this Archermeister, and the marketing team reporting to him. So all of our organic traffic, like SEO and marketing stuff like that, he's in charge of all of that. And we are hiring in departments there on the executive side, so he has less reports. And then we have um, our chief product officer, uh, which his twin brother, uh, Timor Meister. Uh, he has um, the product team reporting to him, the design team reporting to him, the partnerships team reporting to him, the community team reporting to him, and we're building out executives uh, underneath all of them. So that's that's how it's broken down. So you just raise money. That money usually is pretty helpful when you're trying to 
attract, recruit, retain people. Is the money all going into headcount and hiring? Is it going into expansion? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. The the big focus uh, right now, immediately in the first quarters, that had a finance or CFO type person, had a business development, had a sales, had a data, had a product management, had a growth and marketing. These are all people that we want to hire as we build out an executive team. You know, in the beginning, it's very easy to like just have everything your responsibility. So now we have to actually like bring in people that aren't just hustlers, but people that have, you know done this before you know if we want to if we want to expand into higher education for example you want to have people to have like really deep relationships with people that are in higher education and knock on wood we just i think we made an offer yesterday on someone in that regard so yes most of it is going towards hiring uh, just so you can think about it strategically we have about three million people a month coming to us organically looking for career advice we're introducing about twenty-five thousand people a month to different job training programs now and so uh, we need to get really good at data, right? And segment people by level of intent. We need to get really good at product to be able to make sure that those people are getting the right recommendations. Because like, if we have 3 million people coming to us and 25,000 people coming that we're going to schools, so there's a lot of people that aren't just going to boot camps. They want to do not just college either. They want to look at short courses. They want to look at professional courses like Salesforce and Trailhead. They want to look at non-degree courses. They want to look at courses that are launched by individuals themselves, right? So we want to be that front end for all job training. So we have to get good at product. And then we have to get good at design. So once you get really good at like segmenting people, or giving them the right recommendations, you have to have a different way to follow up with every single person. And it's not just going to be through product or text or phone or, or email. You also got to have a human component to it. So you, you have a phone team. We have a phone team that follows up with people, but the phone team's not going to be able to call a billion people every single <laughs> day, right? So then you have to figure out how does product leverage its own community to nurture and support people kind of like how reddit communities support each other with volunteers and moderators and things like that so those are all things that we are are investing in right now i think the head of business development is really really important which is why i want that individual reporting to me because the enterprise is a big channel like if you think about where we're at in the economy right now there's 10 million open jobs there's 4 million people quitting jobs as part of the great resignation you have record job growth um, but you have college enrollment declining twice over the last two years since the pandemic started. We're entering into year three, and they're spending billions of dollars trying to attract enrollments to change this around, but they're starting to embrace the need to go online. Employers are also facing challenges attracting talent because especially on the retail side people don't want to go back to jobs that are in person or that put them in danger they want to take advantage of the remote work trends now that companies have gone online and they're getting aggressive be like well if we're not paying for an office let's get creative on paying for benefits we used to pay for healthcare because people worked in factories let's pay for their education so that they can upskill while they're working for us, but also so we could attract talent. So you see Amazon paying $700 million for tuition for warehouses. You see PwC with $3 billion and AT&T with a billion and, and many others uh, like Macy's and Chipotle and Target. So anyway, those are the things we're investing in. So I want to talk about great resignation and trends and how, you, how you're taking advantage of that. But let me ask uh, kind of last big, what I think of as the last big decoder question. You were just talking about delegating. You were a founder. You've got a couple of co-founders. You had to do it all. As companies grow, you got to hire people with experience. 
how do you make decisions? What's your framework and how is that changing? That's a really good question. How do you make decisions? It really depends on the decision that you're referring to. We do use the OKR framework, like objectives and, and, and key results. And we do have wranglers for each one of those KRs. There are decisions that are made by those leaders, but then we also have to think deeply about what are the decisions that we make as founders that don't always require consensus. We're actually going through the exercise of that now because the things that got us here won't get us to the next level, right? And, and we do have ambitions to be a public company. And so we're going through it all. But the, the short answer is if there's an objective and there's a wrangler, it's their, their final say. But we still talk about it and we have different meetings in order to, to drive those numbers um, and those stretch goals. Yeah. I think that you're in one of the most interesting stages of a company, right? It's successful. You're raising money. I, you're profitable, I think. That's we're what, not profitable that's now. We were profitable okay. during the Series A for five months. That's what we had to do in order to survive. Uh, but now we're investing into growing out our team. Um, but we are making we're healthy at revenue stage. Yeah, but so that you're in that moment of in order to grow, you got to change how things will work. Yeah, it sounds like you're thinking about that a lot. And I, I like that you brought the profitable thing because like we are looking for a head of finance, and it's very important <laughs> because like. You know, if you grow headcount drastically to plant seeds for these things that you're going to be able to harvest later that grow the revenue beyond the cost of the headcount, uh, you got to make sure that the hires that you're making are within the right budget and also mindful of the money that's coming in and all the other things that you're doing to build culture and to, to coach up the team and stuff like that. So I'm looking for a CFO that um, cannot just like keep the books and be like an accountant, but can be very like strategic about different things that we can do and maybe even different opportunities that exist out there now that we have all of these resources. Yeah. Let's talk about money for a second. You said you generate revenue right now. Uh, when you place a student into a boot camp, the boot camp programs pay you. Boot camps are kind of like a unique business, right? They, they end up placing students into big software companies or software companies. Then they take a portion of the salary. Software company salaries tend to be pretty big, so that, that all maths out. But you mentioned you had seven other or six other job training programs in sales and other things. Those numbers aren't necessarily as big as software numbers. So does that math work the same for non-software jobs, non-technical jobs? I would say, think about schools in general, including boot camps, kind of like startups where there's thousands of schools that are out here that teach the same thing in different ways. And so similar to like startups, you have to spend money to attract people. That's why like even even us, like even though we have three million people a month coming to us organically and we are the number one destination for career advice on the internet, we're only attracting people that know what career path they want. You still have to use paid advertising in order to reach people that don't know what they want, which is most people, right? uh, or aren't doing what they love, which is a lot of people. I say that because um, the boot camps that we work with, some of them do have the ISA model that you just described, the income share agreement model. Some of them have a deferred tuition model, but they all have traditional models as well, where you pay tuition up front. Tuition for a boot camp ranges between ten to fifty thousand dollars, including the um, 
schools that are in different career paths like sales, the duration of completing a bootcamp that's not a software engineering bootcamp tends to be on the shorter side of things. So if you're trying to get a job in less than six months or like three months or five months, um, that's an easier path for a lot of people from a time perspective, um, even though it still requires a lot of studying and a lot of work and a lot of building. The thing that boot camps don't have that colleges have is financial aid. Um, there's a couple of them that have financial aid that the government provides. And as you know, you know, colleges make most of their money from the government um, and financial aid and qualification and stuff like that. And student loans, student loans are actually like the number one asset in the U.S., which is kind of crazy. Um, and though it's a liability for others, um, which is a different conversation. But the point is, is that the math works because colleges and, and boot camps have to spend money to attract students and they want to focus on not just marketing that's spewing a bunch of information in their face, but a human component that actually leads to an enrollment that gives them control and not just analytics on how a lead converted once you paid for it. Yeah. You just had lead conversion and you talked about marketing and there's a, there's a portion of what career karma does that looks just like e-commerce or something, right? You, you have a big funnel of incoming people. You want to be the destination for them. Then you segment them, like you said, you match them with a product, you send them into that product, and you take a commission on the back end. Like, mm -hmm. That's exactly right. We think about it like um, something we played with when we were on our Y Combinator days is like we're booking.com for your career or trip, TripAdvisor for your career where if the destination that you're going to is the company that you want to reach in the future, then the hotels and the airlines are the schools and we're kayak right and so but let me let me just push you on that comparison and i it sounds like you didn't run with it all the way so i'm pushing you on it we're probably gonna land in the same place you landed but kayak.com like delta airlines is not in love with kayak.com right like they compete sometimes you get a better deal if you go direct like the schools are still advertising the boot camps are still advertising they would probably prefer not to pay you the commission. How do you think about that competition, that partnership? Because over time, like the big danger is you become, I don't know, like Google for job training and everyone funnels through you and then you have like a lot of market power. And that's a dynamic we see everywhere. I would think about it kind of like Glassdoor. Um, mm -hmm. so, so Rich Barton's a good entrepreneur that I like to study. There's a really good article, I believe, by Kevin Kwok called Making Uncommon Information Common, where you take information that's traditionally opaque and then you give power to, to workers, which, to your point, that's what we do. We give power to workers, so they have information, like Glassdoor gives you information about companies. And to your point, some companies don't like transparent information about what's going on, but workers do, which, which is why they check out those reviews and you can claim your page on Glassdoor if you want to, or just let it run. Or you could like get serious about making sure that you are doing right by your workers so that the reputation is, is good. I think there are players that do very well for their users. They do right by their students. And there's some players that like don't do so so nice for their students, which is why workers aren't just trying to find schools that train them. They're trying to find schools that aren't predatory that they can trust. And we have worker trust. People trust us because we have clear, like if you go to our directory, you don't just see five-star reviews. You don't just see 
reviews of people that graduated that have a graduation bias. You see pros and cons. You see outcomes data that has been uploaded. You see companies where people have been hired. You see projects that have been uploaded by those individuals. You see the ability to see each one of those individuals' profiles. And at some point, you'll also be able to see the live rooms mm -hmm. for each school that are being hosted in real time. And so that, to your point, we are the better business, we will eventually be like the better business bureau of job training. Um, and we will be kind of like the common app for every school. But yes, that's important. And some people don't like that. But the only, the only time they don't like that is if they're not doing right by people. If they're doing right by people, then they like that. That's good. It's like the, the movie poster with all the good quotes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you vet the schools before they come in? Do, is it like any boot camp can sign up and be a part of your thing and get rated? Or are you saying, hold up, first you got to make sure you're legit? It's very important for schools to develop a reputation in the community first before coming into a marketplace. It's very important to us to understand, like, do you have an online component? Even before the pandemic, that was very important for us because if you can have an online component, that means that you can train an infinite number of people. But also, um, it was important for us to make sure that the schools had not just full-time options, but part-time options. Because like I mentioned before, we're serving blue-collar workers and most blue-collar workers can't go to school full-time unless they're like really sacrificing something else. And so you have to have a, a part-time or self-paced option. Ideally, you're graduating thousands of people at least a thousand people a year because if we have three million people a month coming to us we got to be able to have some volume to give you right ideally you have accessible financing that doesn't cripple people with that ideally you have an income share agreement option or a deferred tuition option or something that like doesn't wreck them for years and what was marketed to them is not what was promise and, and delivered so that's important on the financing side of things and then um, do you have a history of job outcomes have you gotten people jobs and that's very clear like it's a very simple question like do you get people jobs yes or no? <laughs> show you us sit people down in a room, like, let me just let's start at the beginning yeah do you get exactly. people jobs? exactly you know and is that data that you audited when the boot camps come to you are you saying give me the books we're doing our diligence we're doing the audit okay you're in or is that self-reported is that seems like as you scale that process is going to be a bottleneck it is an ongoing process that we're working on getting better at. But currently, if you go to our directory, you can actually see the outcomes data by school. There are entities like CIRR, the Council on Integrity Results Reporting, that tracks data and things like that. And we do our state of the bootcamp market report so that people are able to see outcomes by the top schools in our directory. But we have to get better at it. That's part of the reason why we're investing into product and and into data and into design so that we can not just have it inside of our directory, but we can make it easy for the schools to share and show them why that's important and how it helps them, not just with enrollments, but outcomes and retention. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the great resignation. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. 
Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're back. All right, let's talk about the great resignation. It's like 4 million people a month are quitting their jobs, as you said. It's 20 million people in the second half of 2021 alone. There's endless theories about why it's happening. But for you, it represents an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. How do you see that opportunity? When I was in Y Combinator and people asked me, like, what do we do? I told them something different. I said, I said, career combat helps, job training programs, fine, qualified applicants. And then the next slide, and I told them the same thing about serving blue-collar workers and how we get paid. But then I said a big stat. 375 million workers are going to switch careers between now and 2030. And instead of going back to college, they're going to rely on job training programs to find their next jobs. I talked about income share agreements being this unique thing that was happening that made them more accessible. And I also talked about automation and how because of technology and because of robots, a lot of jobs were going to be destroyed, new opportunities were going to be created. Some people pushed back on me during that time period when they were like, you could believe whether automation is here now or it's going to be coming later. Not everybody agreed with me at that point. But then the pandemic hit. And when the <laughs> pandemic hit, then that was kind of like a perfect storm to show that like the digital economy is here. And once every company was forced to go online and even schools were forced to go online, new opportunities were created. In the, in the beginning, like 2020, it was a little bit rocky. But then last year, tech had the, one of the biggest booms ever. It's a record funding history. It's $300 billion in funding that, that came out. And then what you saw in a lot of headlines is remote work and people being able to work from home, which was a very big deal because even though you see that our employment rate went down to 3.9%, the unemployment rate has actually grown for black people, especially black women and, and brown people and, and many other people that are from underestimated backgrounds. And those individuals tend to be in those jobs that they used to be called heroes, which they are heroes, the essential worker jobs on the front lines and the grocery stores and, and warehouses and so on and so forth, hospitals. And 
a lot of people aren't giving them the respect that they deserve and the love that they deserve. And they're like, why am I doing this? You know, why am I putting my own family in danger? Like, how do I take advantage of like being able to work from home and record podcasts on, on the color, you know? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so since they knew the tech world was a very big deal, we started getting a huge influx of people that are interested in making this, this career transition. And now companies themselves are not just providing remote work opportunities, but they're recognizing that if they don't go digital, they will die. So I actually think the big opportunity on the enterprise side, when people hear me talk about the enterprise is they think I'm just going to go to like all the tech companies, which like I am definitely going to work with the gig economy companies. Like I'm not going to name them, but they have millions of drivers and shoppers that are in jobs that they don't want, but they eventually want another job. Like the, the big opportunity is working with the, companies that have big workforces in retail, for example, that are shutting down stores. I'll, I'll give an example there since I'm not in that conversation, but like CVS, for example, you know, they shut down 900 stores and they specifically said they're going to double down on digital, right? What happens to all those workers that just got shut down, right? Like they probably are going to not want to go back to another retail job because they don't want the same thing to happen to them again. Like you mentioned e-commerce earlier, we've seen what Amazon did. You thought Amazon was a juggernaut, then Shopify popped up, right? That's only gonna, that's gonna continue to happen. Who was the last time you've been at a mall? I don't know. I don't remember the last time I was at a mall, right? And so people that are in the jobs are gonna, they've woken up and they recognize, hey, we need to figure out not just how to find a job that pays me well, that's flexible. How do I stay relevant always? Because you can't just get a new job and just like, fall back by the wayside and so these are all the things that are happening um i manifested that cvs thing so if you're listening to this right now <laughs> holla at me we're here <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of manifestation on decoder i don't know if you know this we did an interview with uh, a woman who manifests uh an audience on tiktok to sell excel training courses she's doing very well i like um, that that conversation was more about manifestation than i ever thought it would be so you're in good company um you talked a lot about blue collar workers these retail workers you want to make sure that you're offering them good training so they're not getting ripped off. These income sharing agreements, which are fascinating, right? The boot camps take a percentage of your salary to pay off your training once you get the job. There are pluses and minuses to that, but you think that that was one of the unlocks to your business. Huge unlock. ISAs exist. What Go through the pros and cons of that because I've heard various versions of how well that works out. Yeah, I'll give you an example of my brother. My brother, uh, he got a job making $150,000 in five months. So he went to a, a bootcamp called App Academy. He did not know how to code before that. They charged, I think it was around between 15 to 17%, something like that, 15 to 7% of whatever his future tuition was going to be. And I forget the time period, but I think it was supposed to be paid off in three years after he got a job until he like hits the whatever it is so like he ended up paying it all off in in one year and it was less than thirty thousand dollars that he paid and he got a job making hundred fifty five thousand dollars in five months so that's a, that's a good story i think whenever you're thinking about an income share agreement and whether you should sign up to one or not i think the first question you got to ask yourself is are they charging me a percentage of my tuition for the job that they are promising that they will get me Right, because you could structure an ISA contract where um, 
I promise to get you a job. If you don't get a job, you don't pay anything. But if you do get a job, the tuition comes out of your salary. But the the job that I'm helping you get needs to be the specific job that I trained you in. Because if it's any job, then that can be challenging, right? So that's number one. Number two, you know, what percentage of the tuition are you charging? What's cool about ISAs is that there's a cap structure. So let's say it's like 10% tuition just to keep the math simple. Um, and it's a $100,000 job that you get, that's 10,000 a year. Um, and I tell you the, 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 the cap is $15,000, right? So by year one and a half, you'll have paid off your $15,000 because $1,000 the first year and $500 for you know the first six months of the next year, and then you're done. Um, versus like if you pay 10% for three years, then that's 30,000 total. And people are like, well, you know, that's bad. But you have to ask yourself, what's the cap? So however they said the cap matters a lot. And then also the time period. So like, do you have to pay it all in one year? Do you have to pay it three years? Do you have to pay it five years? Colleges that have ISAs, which by the way, Colleges are the originator of income share agreements. It started at Yale University. So I have a whole YouTube video on the history <laughs> of income share agreements. But um, colleges tend to have longer durations for how to pay off income share agreements. And then I have a, a very big differentiator that I explain in that video about how income share agreements are not alone. And then I sing a bad version of Michael Jackson's You Are Not Alone. Um, and oh then... Um, <laughs> and oh then... <laughs> <laughs> this and podcast then, went sideways. <laughs> now we're doing karaoke. All right. There is a new thing that I'm seeing that is very common, which is deferred tuition. Mm-hmm. People like Springboard use this in uh, Skills Fund and Ascent and Climb Credit. So what, what they do is it's similar to income share grants where they charge after you get a job. Instead of a percentage of your tuition, it's a fixed amount. So it's kind of like it's, it has more loan like components to it which we're not anti-loan which got to make sure that like however whatever it is that you're thinking about doing is structured it doesn't screw you over for years like so many people are screwed over with 1.8 trillion in student loans and we want to avoid if we're sending someone somebody somewhere that they are put in a good position because you know that's why we have so much trust and so much loyalty in our community one of the things that's interesting about isa is and deferred tuition right you're you're in and out, you're done. You kind of know the cap, maybe. You don't have these loans to contend with. All that stuff is aimed at what I think broadly you're defining as your market, right? Blue-collar workers, retail workers who are getting – like this. it's a horrible time to be a flight attendant in America, right? Like the service worker economy is just suffering. All those people want out. They need a low-risk way to get a different set of skills. Underrepresented people need a different pathway in. But one of the things that just struck me is like the pathway isn't to tech companies, right? That's where a lot of the money is. Tech companies are not great at retaining, developing their underrepresented employees. We hear these stories over and over again. If I had to tell you like where are the biggest scoops at The Verge come from, it's unhappy workers at big tech companies over the last year, right? So how do you just see that dynamic playing out? Like, here's your market. You want to get them these opportunities. And then the companies, once they're in the door, are kind of dropping the ball. That's such a good question. Because to your point, breaking into tech is one thing. Staying in tech is another thing. It's not always the worker's fault. Like it could be a toxic environment that they're in. So like company selection really matters. And you don't want to just look at the headlines for who are the hot companies. Um, I'll give 
a few examples of non-tech companies that are doubling down on tech. Domino's, Target. They're gonna make the pizza tracker real. Cause right yeah. now it's <laughs> Domino's. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Domino's, <laughs> Target, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Walmart, all of these companies are Starbucks, all these companies are Nike are really, really investing in their digital side of things. And if you actually look at the open jobs, I'm probably going to screw up the, the stat, but I've, I heard through the grapevine, so this is not my words, but I heard through the grapevine that like Target hired like over 2,000 software engineers last year. And like you're like, well, I didn't know Target has that. Big companies that are doing this, and to your point, uh, a company like American Express, for example, is, is very well known for customer service and probably has like really good training internally. So what does a company like American Express like look like hiring someone in the tech job and training them and retaining them and, and surrounding them with love? I have not looked at American Express's last door reviews, but I would assume that they're high just because I do like the customer service. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I do think that like, identifying companies that are well known for having really good internal cultures that are in an antiquated position and that need to double down on digital and that are executing on it in a good way is probably a good idea because there are some retail companies that are transforming into e-commerce companies and, and it's not just retail companies that are affected like you mentioned you know travel industry there's the trucking industry there's the oil and gas industry there's the healthcare industry there's like so many spaces that are being changed find the ones that have really good reputations for training and at some point you know career will have a company directory as well to be able to give you that information too so you know You're which ones do have smiling. that good that's that a big good, grin. He's a good like, training you can see it <laughs> thank you for that alley <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a, that's what I'm asking you. You're going you're gonna to close the loop, right? You've talked about Glassdoor a number of times, mm -hmm. but like one step is, okay, now I'm in the industry. I've proven my value. I'm looking for my next gig. Mm -hmm. It might not be you come back to career karma for skills. It's I'm going to start engaging recruiters or LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm going to do LinkedIn stories, right? Like those are open pathways for career karma, right? That's where you're going. That's the play. Yeah, I mean, number one, become the number one destination for career advice on the internet. Number two, become the world's largest community of career transitioners online. And if we've given you advice and you've graduated from the schools, where do you think you're going to go to get guidance about where you want to go next? Obviously. Like, people, when they're thinking about picking schools, where do they go? They go to their families and their friends. But if their family and friends don't know about these career paths, they come to a place like Career Karma, and they meet a family of strangers that end up, end up being like a pseudo family that really becomes their friends for life. And they build a lot of social capital with those individuals. A lot of those individuals get jobs through career karma. And then when people are in the job search, those people are able to like get referred into companies because most jobs come through referral. But then we can have a directory of companies where, here's a good example. Imagine, what where are you at right now? You're in the Bay Area? No, I'm in upstate New York. You're in New York. Have you always been in the tech world or the journalist world? I was a lawyer before, but yeah. You're a lawyer. Okay, cool. So imagine if I could show you a list of companies with former lawyers that graduated from Flatiron School in New York. I'd run. A company full of former <laughs> lawyers? Get out. <laughs> yeah. 
or whatever that you love, that you love right? So like, but like now you found people that like hated being a lawyer that figured out how to transition into tech by level of concentration. So wow, I found my people that like also wanted to get out and made it and had their exit opportunities. And these are companies that are probably likely to hire me. All right, now let me look at each one of those companies. How long have they stayed at those companies? Are they retaining in it or are they using those companies as their first job on the resume to to flip and get the next job because a lot of people get more higher salaries by changing jobs all the time, which is another reason why people are changing jobs all the time. I think that's like the the right approach in order to like start building out reputations, not just like by reviews and, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, we will be doing things on the company side at some point. So we, we are going to start building a company directory um, this year. And then you're doing the enterprise stuff and helping companies train their own workers. Yeah. We have to take one more break, but when we come back, we're going to touch on the creator economy and jobs with less traditional schedules. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. Until this point, Ruben and I have only really talked about jobs that fit the more traditional idea of a job. But there are so many other ways to make money now that I wanted to make sure we talked about that. You're kind of describing a fairly traditional job market, right? With some training, some resources, some transparency, some democracy of access. But you're still trying to get a job with a 401k, stay there for years, and then you're off to get another job. I would say one of the trends of the great resignation is like a lot of people are like, I don't want that. I want to trade Bitcoin all day and then like play Halo all night. Like I want to find another community, another way of thinking about money in my life. Is that a threat? Is that an opportunity? Is that just happening in parallel and it's not disrupting your market? Because that is the flip side of all of this is people saying, I don't want these traditional careers. I, I, I'll be a free agent. I'll do it project based. I'll get out. I'll travel for six months. I'll come back and do it again. So, that's a great question. I love all these questions. It's probably one of the best questions I've ever heard. So, like, 
the creator economy is a very real thing. Assuming that we have all of these things that we just described, those creators might want to create a lane for themselves, educating people on, let's say, crypto or Web3, for example. Most people that career karma have no idea what Web3 is. They're still trying to figure out Web2. They, they, a lot of them don't even know what JavaScript is, right? mm-hmm. which nothing wrong with that. Most people don't. Right? And there's room for creators to host audio rooms or posts inside of our community to reach those people, to build their audiences and be freelancers and make a lot of money by like selling their own courses that are effective, that get people jobs that we can host inside of our community as well. I do think to your point, it's a really great article about Korea and teachers that make millions of dollars a year. I believe, this is my personal opinion, I believe the individual creator will be bigger than any institution by itself um, because that's where things are going. I mean, you're starting to see it with a lot, with a lot of, even podcasters like Joe Rogan himself is like bigger than like many media platforms, but you can see that as well with education. I was just with my, my crypto friends recently and I was asking them, I was like, hey man, like I'm moving to Miami. Like I see, you know, tokens and crypto and s- such a big thing, but like there's so much scamminess that's out there and so it's hard to understand what's real and what's fake what should i listen to and so he started giving me recommendations of what i should listen to and who i should talk to and what courses to take because i need to educate myself about what's going on with the new economy right like there's there's ways to get paid through cash stock options but then there's tokens right so you get you got to understand that especially if you're thinking about building a big community because if you don't you're going to get left um so anyway I do think that creator economy is a big deal, and I do think that they can build their audience inside of career karma. Uh, Gary, so top tier letter series B, but uh, which is the LP of initialized capital in that letter series A, and I, I bring them up because Gary Tan, who's at initialized, uh, who was also a former Y Combinator partner that created Bookface internally for uh, career karma, he says that you know career karma is like Y Combinator for the people, where Y Combinator bets on first-time founders and career kind of bets on people for the first time. So right now we're helping people get jobs. Eventually, uh, those individuals could either start their own courses or um, start their own companies. Eventually, we could probably connect those people to not just Y Combinator, but any other accelerator right, as well. And maybe even kind of check directly into them. Like one of our other angels is uh, Jack Altman, CEO of Lattice, where you know when people leave his company, which eventually they will, if they want to start a company, there's a world where they can cut them a check as well just like slack has a fund salesforce has a fund city all these people have like this corporate venture funds are are a thing but it's more of like have the like you can see history but that's very future states (laughs) yeah let me zoom out that it's funny it's uh i did mention bitcoin so i probably led you there but i asked about how people are thinking about careers broadly and you immediately went to creators in crypto right and maybe in the tech world like those are the answers. If you don't want a nine to five, it's I'm gonna. You have a podcast. That's a great marketing channel for for career karma. But I'm be a YouTuber. I hear it all the time. We interview YouTubers. Very complex businesses. But that's not all, right? Like there are other people who are saying, I was a nurse at a hospital, and if I just quit my job as a full time nurse and now am a traveling nurse, I actually make more money and I feel more respected. 
but that's just a huge change in how anybody yeah i mean the, the, uh, thinks the, the, about it. We, we're actually doing a story about accountants in tax season accountants across america are like furious at their lives mm-hmm. and they're all, they're all just like bailing out <laughs> right yeah. uh they're not all going to become podcasters right but they're the nature of the profession or the nature of how the profession is organized will change is that like for sales for example that's one of your career paths is that something you see happening as well yeah i mean i, th- I think to your point i think um the freelance economy is huge because of the internet you can get money in so many ways like you can pick something random like i want to get money doing this and like there's probably a way for you to make money from mm-hmm. it and i would think about jobs more of like the way to get the skills for who you ultimately want to be i think to your point we've entered into the end of occupational identity where you're not an accountant or a lawyer or whatever, you're just who you are. And all of these, there's a really good book by Reed Hoffman called um, Alliances, I believe it's called, The Startup of You. And like how you like do these tours of duty during your lifetime that help you become your ultimate version of who you are. So I think the relationship with the job is less on like, how does this pay me the most amount of money so I can retire and take care of my family? And more like, how does this help me at this moment of time to become the version of myself that I ultimately want to be. And I think to your point, our whole view of like what retirement really is, is is changing. So you are seeing things like that with sales and stuff like that. But I would say in addition to working at a startup, outside of skills, people are looking to be able to say that they built something that's a W that they can not necessarily put on their resume to get another job, but to be able to say that they did it so that when they do strike out on their own they can say i've done this before listen to me is there any better credibility than saying i did it already it's pretty period Period. Uh, (laughs) so on creators you mentioned you've got people on your platform they're offering courses you've got a live audio component we've talked a lot about how you might scale once you start doing user content like that and letting people just talk live you, you get moderation problems right like yeah, I did it. And now I did it. I got the credibility. Listen to me, because I'll tell you, and that could just be a total scam. Right. How are you thinking about those moderation challenges? Such a good question, man. Um, it seems like you've done this before. Um, <laughs> but, uh, here, you know, secret decoder? it's all the same questions every time. Like everybody's got the same problems. That's the whole secret of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the only so, thing so, I haven't asked you about is the chip shortage. Is that affecting you? The chip shortage. I don't even yeah, know. that's it. That's the one. Yeah. It's the one box that didn't check with you. But moderation yeah. is, seems like moderation. It's right there. Yeah, no, moderation is right there. Yeah, um, it's a good question because even though we have the live audio component and it's special, and we have this huge war chest that we can scale quickly, I will say this lightly: I want to avoid the moderation issues that come from scaling live audio that we're all familiar with. Yeah, it's very important to make sure that as you grow, that you don't just expand to every single career set immediately. You want to make sure that you are thoughtful about, all right, to your point right now, most of the rooms are hosted by us, but we have opened it up so anybody can start a room because the purpose of technology is to give people a voice, the power to create and the power to organize. We still want to be thoughtful about who is speaking inside of the rooms. And we're starting with uh, schools and students and alumni themselves. And the short answer to your question is, 
we haven't fully figured it out yet. Yeah. But we're not dealing with that issue yet, but we're mindful that it could be a problem. So we study different communities that have done it well. I do like how Discord has done things like there's a lot of like things that we that we gotta be careful of and learn from our other people that we admire in the in the ecosystem about challenges that they have faced. And so we have friends at all of those entities that are giving us guidance on how to create community guidelines in a way that it doesn't turn into a cesspool. I don't have to be as polite as you. So I'll, <laughs> I, I don't. It's, a, it's the benefit of my my gig. Uh, I'll tell you, I think Clubhouse has like massive moderation. Like every night on Clubhouse, people are just wilding. It, it is nuts. They haven't solved it with live audio in particular. How do you solve it unless you record everybody so you have a history so you can make a decision, right? That's iffy for another whole host of other reasons. Then you've got the scale problem, right? If you let everybody do everything, you're going to spend all $52 million of those dollars just hiring moderators all day. Those are just basics, right? Are you recording everybody all the time? Are you just managing scale of rooms? Are you going to hire your own moderators? Are you going to contract that out to Accenture or whatever? Like, How are you thinking about that? We, we do have moderators right now. We also have uh, groups called squads that are squad leaders. We have a lady named Brenda that just joined us from Udacity. That we have Julie, who's in charge of our events, and some product managers like Melvin that are managing these rooms. I think the trick is to really keep the rooms small right now to like test a lot of things. We are launching recorded rooms in the, in the first couple of quarters, but it's less on moderation type of things and more so that people have power to build their own brands as an individual, which is a different conversation than this one. I think the short answer to your question is like, don't get distracted by the amount of capital that you've raised to just spend it and burn it all to just grow users at all costs without understanding like how they're retaining and how they're interacting and are they really getting value out of it so i talked about design earlier but like having designers that are like really asking unbiased questions and not leading questions for the outcome that you want like yeah we want to build the world's largest community of career transitions online but you could ask questions to your users that have your own biases in mind they're like revalidating your thinking but not like question like making you reorganizing your stuff so that you could actually like have people that you could retain inside the community that's going to be very important one of our angel investors is also the ceo of of apna which is the fastest growing unicorn in in india and it's a workforce development company they got the 16 million users in two years and they're doing very very well so we're speaking with people like him about how to find the balance of growing fast uh moderation and and, and serving people properly I hear about responsible growth from platforms, but I mostly hear it from platforms. Do you think of this as a, a social platform like that? You mentioned people building their own brands there. I wouldn't have started this conversation thinking, oh, Career Karma is a social platform and it's going to have social platform dynamics. But you're kind of, you're headed in that growth. You're using that language. Is that what you're thinking about? Yes. That was great. Perfect answer. <laughs> no follow-ups. <laughs> that is correct. Really? So that's in the same zone as... Twitter and YouTube and whatever, right? Yeah, man. Like, if you think about the people that we're serving, right, they're blue-collar. Blue-collar workers don't look good on LinkedIn because they didn't. A lot, a lot of them didn't go to college. I don't like the word blue-collar anyway. But, like, and I'm not sh- shutting down LinkedIn. I, like Link- I think LinkedIn is amazing. But it's geared towards white-collar workers, right? If a lot of people that join Career Karma, 
that never had a LinkedIn profile before, have an online resume before, we are their first version of a digital identity. So since we have such good SEO, when people Google their name, we pop up number one. And that profile is rich. It has, you know, who they are, where they're from, what school they're attending, what stage that they're in, you know, what projects they've built. And that's big because the resume is dying. And there's like so many things that are out there, but yes, that's the next phase. But we'll talk about that on the next fundraising. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lastly, you just mentioned that you moved to Miami. We've seen this massive shift to remote work. People are sort of just reorganizing themselves physically as well, as well as in their careers. Is that here to stay, or do you think people are going to resort into to cities and offices? No, oh, people are not going to go back to offices full time. I think you, that you're um, in an office right now. No, this is my my live workspace. This, so this is all laptops. We have a living room over there. We have bedrooms upstairs. We have bunk beds here for anybody that's in the job search because we always keep that open. But um, we're 100% remote. We've been remote since before remote was cool. Uh, we started in April 2018. So if you want to check my check my receipts, you can check. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but um, I think that I do think that human interaction matters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, last night I was with one of our new data hires. Came from North Carolina to visit some break bread with us. I'm from the South, so like I understand the importance of like Southern hospitality and eating food in person is not the same as eating food on a Zoom video. No. But um, I think like when you think about the cost savings that a company has, the life that is wasted on a commute back and forth. There's some people that would be on a commute back and forth between New York and New Jersey, like for hours every single day. I think that pretty much every company is either going to go fully remote or hybrid. That's why I do think that like co-working spaces have a big opportunity. I also think co-living spaces have a big opportunity. When I first moved to the Bay Area, I lived in a house with 14 people. It's a big mansion in the mission. But there's now companies like Launch House that are starting to buy up different houses. And as people get more wealthy, they're able to like buy more land and property. And they're able to like descend on different places. Like I was just in Argentina last week with my co-founder and I'm here doing this interview and I could pretty much pick wherever I want to go tomorrow and work from there as long as it has a Wi-Fi and internet connection and be just as effective. And I, I don't see why anybody wouldn't want to do that. So, so why did you choose to go to Miami? This is kind of like, this is the back and forth here, right? I hear that. And then I hear like, we're all going to Nashville or Austin or Miami. Yeah. So the reason why I'm going to Miami is first of all, I have an advantage. So I'm 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 black and I speak Spanish. So that's my my first language, and like that. And then I'm close to family. So that's like personal reasons, which I think is very important. Also, I think that um, it's a perfect example of what happens where you have a lot of growth from tech jobs perspective venture capitalists coming there, operators coming there, companies wanting to change, and a lot of hunger to like to be one of the most driven cities in the nation, and a very vocal uh, politician that's really speaking about what's going on. But you're already starting to see similar dynamics to other cities that have done this, where the rent's starting to go up, and the local people that make the city magical don't know about how to take advantage of the opportunities that are being presented. Think about San Francisco. You have people in Oakland, you have people here in San Francisco that used to live here, that are from the Bay. They can't live here anymore. They know why it's happening. They know tech is taking over, but they don't know how to 
how, how they can get a piece, right? And what's interesting about Miami is like 50% of the economy is in the service sector, making 35000 a year and susceptible to automation, which I brought up earlier in this interview, that can kick them out of those jobs. So what I want to do is I want to be with the people. I want to work with the government and the local employers, not just the tech companies, but the local employers that have to change to the tech companies, the universities that are there because they have a great university system, and the foundations like Knight Foundation to figure out how to create a playbook to make sure that local people can take advantage of these jobs. And I'm working with Saif over there, who's worked with Francis Suarez, to come up with the playbook, work with the workforce development agencies like Rick Beasley over there that I know over there, to come up with the playbook that works for Miami to prevent that. And if that works for Miami, uh, I believe... Mayor Schwartz is now in the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Whether it's through him or if I do it myself, I'm going to figure out how to get to all the other cities in the nation to get that done. And then I'm going to talk to Davos in the World Economic Forum and tell them this is what you need to do. So that's going to happen. So I'll manifest that too. All right, man. This is great. <laughs> we started with like the resume's dead and we ended with <laughs> Mayor Suarez is going to change. change. Uh, that is. <laughs> that dude, he's, he's, we got to get him on the show. Creighton, we got to get. I can set that up. I'll figure it out. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, last question. This is an easy one. You got a lot of big plans. You just raised some money. You've got some steps ahead of you. What's next for a career karma? What's the next big thing we should see from a user perspective or a consumer perspective? On the audio room side of things, I think the the, the recorded live audio rooms. I think that's going to be a really a really big deal. Um, I think up until this point, you've only had students and schools hosting rooms and some companies like Pandora and others that host rooms you see a lot more companies involved with uh, the community but you're also going to see like really interesting like nonprofit communities like Deaf Color and Women Who Code and, and others that have been self-organized and Slack communities start joining the platform and so I think that's going to all really be interesting to see how do we get all of these communities that exist in like Google groups and Facebook groups and like other places on the internet into career karma so that, that'll be cool that's great. Well, Ruben, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Thank you, brother. Thanks again to Ruben Harris for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to know what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Jackie McDermott, and Liam James. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.